Please turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, the verses we will be looking at this morning are verses 15 through 30 as we continue through our series in the Gospel of Luke. The title of our sermon this morning is Children and Rich Men. And our key words are children, good, and money. Now this morning we're going to look at what I like to think of as a sort of a sandwich in terms of the context that Jesus is communicating in. It's helpful if you uh, recall what we looked at last week, and that's sort of the first bread of building our sandwich. Uh, Remember the the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the publican that Jesus told as a parable. We we talked about the Pharisee's self-righteousness. Remember, he was praying and saying, Thank you, God, that I am so wonderful, that I have done all of these wonderful things, and that I am not like those other people. So we saw the self-righteous heart of the Pharisee, and that's kind of our first slice of bread if we're building our sandwich this morning. Our second slice is what we will see at the end of our passage this morning, and it's, uh, it's what's become known as the story of the rich young ruler. Again, we have a man uh, who, not quite as outwardly as the Pharisee, but he is still very self-righteous like the Pharisee. It reveals itself in a different way. He's self-righteous. He's self-sufficient in his own eyes. And so we have these two pieces of bread, if you will, as a sandwich of self-righteousness. But right in the middle of all of that, we are going to see a child. All that fills this out, all of the good stuff that goes in between, we're going to see a child. And Jesus is going to use this child to illustrate what a true Christian is to be. And what a true Christian is. And so the full context is always very important as we read through the Scriptures. This context, recalling last week's parable, but also remembering this wider discussion that began back in chapter 17 and verse 20, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the disciples about the kingdom of God. Jesus continues to talk about what it means to be a true citizen of God's kingdom versus the self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees, that we will see in the rich young ruler. Remember, we discussed last week the problem that Jesus points out, that we all have the problem of righteousness. We need to be counted righteous in order to stand before God. However, we cannot earn it, we cannot self-produce it, it cannot be from any source other than Jesus Christ alone. We need His righteousness if we are to be members of God's kingdom. And any attempt at self-righteousness leaves us depending on our fallen, finite wisdom and our, our own sense of goodness and power, as opposed to the infinite wisdom the infinite goodness, and the infinite power of God. So in our text today, Jesus will help us further along the road of understanding how we enter into the kingdom of God. What does it look like to be a Christian? On the flip side of that, we will see what does a self-dependence and a self-sufficient mindset lead to as we look at the rich young ruler. So first, let's begin with the child. Luke chapter 18 Verses 15 and 16. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. 
And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The first thing we see here is parents bringing their infant children to Jesus. Luke writes that he might touch them. Notice, doesn't say to sprinkle them with water or to baptize them, as my Pado baptist friends like to do, but to touch them. Jesus is just being biblical. So what is that all about? Well, there's probably all sorts of reasons as to why it was that some of these parents wanted Jesus to touch their child, but it wasn't an odd thing at all. In fact, on the day prior to the Day of Atonement every year, people would bring their children to the priests for them to give their children uh, a blessing, a scriptural blessing. I do that sometimes with my children. Perhaps you do that with yours. It's, it's similar to a blessing that we pronounce at the end of our worship every week in the benediction. So the people saw Jesus as a rabbi. He was their teacher. He was a godly man. They wanted him to touch their children. They very likely did not see him yet to be the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, but they coveted his blessing nonetheless. So it was a normal thing, it was a good thing, but upon their arrival to do so, what did they receive? They received a rebuke from the disciples. Luke writes, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now what do you suppose would have motivated the disciples to rebuke those parents? Well, Luke doesn't really tell us. Maybe they were seeking to protect Jesus from being bombarded. He's constantly surrounded by people. Uh, They're clamoring to be near him, to touch him, to hear him. Maybe they thought the whole thing was just a, a big, gigantic waste of his precious time. So they sought to put an end to it. But whatever their motivation, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach something very important. And he rebukes the disciples in turn. Notice Jesus doesn't talk about his love for children, although it's a beautiful and very obvious thing. He didn't talk about the importance of diligent and faithful parenting. He didn't remind everyone of the blessing of having children. All of those are important and they're true and they are biblical. But Jesus was a very good teacher and he seized on opportunities like this to make the most penetrating statements. He used this opportunity to speak about the kind of people who enter the kingdom of God. Jesus takes this situation, he uses these children to illustrate two important truths about those who will enter the kingdom of God. He says, first, that we must be as a child. And secondly, he will say that we must receive as a child. Being and receiving as a child. First, let's look at it. It is to be like a child. Look again at verse 16. He says, Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So we have to ask, what could this possibly imply for us? Keeping in mind the the context of all this, let's ask of the text, what's the difference between an infant child 
and a self-righteous Pharisee or a self-righteous, self-sufficient young ruler. What's the difference between the two? Well, there's absolutely no question at all about an infant being completely and totally helpless, right? If you've had a child before, you know that to be very, very true. The objective state of every single infant child is that they are utterly helpless and dependent upon others in every single aspect of their being. A newborn. Think of them. Naked, with flailing hands and feet lifted toward the sky. It's a heart-wrenching profile of absolute helplessness. And unlike any other creature, it's a helplessness that extends on for years and years. Some people onto their 30s and on. But <laughs> No child would survive in its early years without the help of others. Every child is born into the world in absolute, complete, total helplessness. And here's the point of Jesus' illustration. So it is with every child who is born into the kingdom of God. Children of the kingdom enter into it helpless. Brothers and sisters, if our greatest Christian heroes enter the kingdom of God, it will not be because of their preaching. It will not be because of their humanitarian works. It will not be because of their hours of prayer or the tremendous books they've written or the conferences they've spoken at, or because they were faithful husbands or wives or parents, they will enter the kingdom of God because they came to Christ as a helpless child. It will all be because of God's undeserving kindness toward them in their helplessness. And the same God who saves our heroes is the God who saves us. He is our Father. We are His children. And as infants, we are helpless without Him. The requirement to enter the kingdom of God is, as Jesus tells Nicodemus, that we must be born again. So you see the imagery, the illustration that the Bible paints for us. We are born as new babes, new infants in Christ, and we are helpless. And we need the provision and the help of our Father who is God. There's a great hymn with these words. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. And if you would enter the kingdom of God, there is only one way you can come. As a child helpless, in need for all of your provision. And as I think about this, I picture all of my self-efforts. And those are like more of a, a young toddler, perhaps, who tries and tries to, and tries to do something on their own, with a little streak of independence, perhaps, but without any real knowledge of how it's done. Have you ever watched a two- or three-year-old try to tie their own shoes? They think they can do it. They really want to do it. They might even wave you off when you try to intervene. But eventually, they're forced to say, Would you please help? Will you help me? And as Christians, we must remember that reality of our own helplessness. 
Are we going to wave off the Lord and say, I've got it on my own? Or do we come as infant children, calling to the Lord for help instantly, instead of fumbling around without knowledge of our own? Now, Jesus goes on further to explain that we must also receive as a child. Let's look at verse 17. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. Now again, we need to ask a question of the text. How does a child receive? Now, most people don't struggle with giving children gifts. It's a joy. There's a great deal of satisfaction in doing so. And children absolutely trust those that they are close to. They trust that when they receive a gift, they aren't receiving something that's going to be harmful or that's going to be a big letdown. Now, it may be that. You may get socks and underwear or something, but there is an absolute trust in a child, right? Initially, they trust that you're giving them something good and enjoyable, Have you ever seen a child receive a gift and then not want to open it right away to see what's inside? I haven't. There's joy. There's excitement. There's there's trust. There's urgency. There's anticipation. These are the elements of receiving that the Lord is pointing out. And in it all, what is being communicated to a child in that giving is love and so often they return from those gifts hugs and kisses and thank yous this is the idea behind Jesus's exhortation if we are christians we will receive the gift of god's kingdom with anticipation with joy with trust with urgency we want what the lord is giving to us and if we don't jesus says we shall not enter the kingdom. You see, kingdom entrance first depends on our coming to God as a child, helpless, in need. Words to Ahem say this, Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. You see, unlike the disciples, we must not think a child cannot come to God until he is like a man. But more importantly, we must understand that a man cannot come to God unless he is like a child. We must grow downward until we become like a child. Jesus' words are true. I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Matthew's parallel passage to this, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Strong words, but very important words with everlasting implications. Now, in the midst of all of this teaching, Jesus receives a question. Let's look at the question, verses 18 and 19. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now here we read a very well-known instance of a young man who is a ruler, probably a governor, a political leader of some sort. He asks what we should assume to be a very legitimate question. In fact, I would absolutely love for someone to come and ask me that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Are you kidding me? What a great question. Can I pay off your mortgage and clean your house every week? There's kind of a a very quick response that you expect there. Yes, of course, let me talk to you about this. This is the greatest thing you can ask. They don't just come up like that. If you had all spent any time trying to evangelize, you realize this is not typical, right? So here Jesus gets this perfect softball to hit out of the park. But what does he say in response? Why do you call me good? You you just called me good. You called me good teacher. Why did you say that? Nobody is good except God alone. Now, I don't know about you. You may be a lot more spiritual than me. But my initial reaction is to think that um, that is not going to be the key verse in the next, next book that's written on church growth strategies, right? I mean, what would you write to that? How to answer the number one most important question everyone could ever ask. Step one, question their motives and tell them they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) But this is what makes Jesus' wisdom so very much unlike ours, isn't it? I would immediately hear what the man says, try to filter through all that and say, yeah, he said some wrong things. I'm going to put all that aside and I'm going to deal with the meat of what he's asking How do I enter the kingdom of God? But Jesus is wise in how he hears and how he responds. So he takes a side road to get to his response, and he addresses the heart of this man. But what's the point of this? Why does Jesus highlight this aspect of the man's question? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And God's, wis- uh, God's goodness is certainly a persistent motif throughout the Bible. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. This is a constant repetitious mantra throughout the Bible. God has an exclusive claim on goodness. No man can make such a claim of himself. We talked about that last week. So it wasn't normal that a man would come to a rabbi and call him good. It wasn't a phrase that would be used to address anyone. There's an absolute understanding of what Jesus himself said. No one is good except God alone. So we don't know why he called him good teacher. But Jesus does a little probing here. He wants there to be some thought given to who he is. It's as if Jesus said, am I good? You think I'm good? Well, only God alone is good. Therefore, what does that say about me? So hopefully, lights are going off, buzzers are ringing. Who is Jesus? And so he continues to press. He was helping this man to connect the dots. 
If the ruler could see the goodness of Jesus' life and his ministry, he would know that the kingdom of God was present. Think, man, I, I am good. And if I am, and if only God is good, then who am I? What am I doing here? Why do you want anything to do with me? And he goes on in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, the, the rich young ruler said, All these I have kept from my youth. So Jesus tells the man, he gets on to answering his question. He says, in essence, you must keep the law of God. He mentions commandments 5 through 9 here. Not in order, but they're all there. Now, Jesus elsewhere summarized the second table of the law by saying, love your neighbor. These are all the commandments minus one contained in loving your neighbor. And Jesus is pressing in on the ruler to help him recognize his own lack of what he perceives to be goodness. Now, remember last week we we talked about the Pharisee's idea that he was good. And here this ruler thinks quite the same of himself if he answers this question to say, well, I've kept all of these since I was a young boy. Sadly, he misses Jesus' entire point. Now, there's no question that this young man really does think that he kept all of God's law. But he was completely ignorant to the spiritual nature of God's law. He functioned much like the Apostle Paul did prior to his conversion. When he was Saul, he thought he was following God's command. But he writes in Romans 7 that when he really began thinking through the implications of the 10th commandment, he was nailed. He was guilty. Paul wrote, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. You see, spiritually illumined, Paul saw that the entire interior life that he lived was filled with covetousness. And when he tried to keep himself from coveting, he did it all the more. The law killed. It condemned him. But now, Paul says, now that I know what this is, I recognize that the sentence was death and unchecked covetousness causes the breaking of the entirety of God's law bringing evil acts of murder and adultery and theft and lying into my life. But remember something here, that Jesus only went up in talking to the rich young ruler. He only addressed commandments 5 through 9. He still had one more to go with regard to the second table of the law. And here is where he shines a floodlight on the ruler's soul. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This young man was full of material covetousness, and the Lord went after him. This man loved his possessions more than he loved God. And his materialism was a clear indication that he really did not love his neighbor as he loved himself and as he just claimed that he did. So he was no keeper of God's law. He wasn't the good man that he thought he was. He was self-righteous. He was a self-sufficient man who thought he had it all together. But when he realized that that wasn't so much the case, he walks away. Luke writes, he was very sad, and he gives us the reason, for he was extremely rich. He wasn't sad because his heart was exposed for the darkness and his defilement. He wasn't sad because Jesus made very clear that he was far from God and either, even further from God's law. He was sad because being right with God would have required in him a change. He loved his money. He loved his possessions. He wasn't willing to part with what he had in order to inherit eternal life. Just think of that. What a a perverse heart. What a wicked heart. He weighed out the cost and decided the kingdom of God, the everlasting kingdom of God, was not worth the investment. There was something he wanted more than the kingdom of God. It's the pleasures of the world. What about you? What is your desire? The kingdom of God or the pleasures of the world? You see, Jesus' point here is not that what the ruler had was evil in and of itself. Money itself is not an evil. But the love of money is idolatry, and it plays itself out in covetousness. Jesus addressed this man's wealth the way that he did because he knew that this was what was in the man's heart. He knew it to be true that the more we have, the more prone we are to let all of it have us. Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Dante refers to this decision made by those who prefer the world and the riches over the kingdom of God as the great refusal. I like that phrase, and the great refusal, the greatest refusal. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that all of us need to give up our wealth, living to pursue a life of conscious denial. That's asceticism. It's been tried before and found lacking. Likewise, he's not recommending poverty to all of his people. Poverty does not deliver us from the love of money. There's a reason why 70% of lottery sales across the nation are to people who make less than $19,000 a year. Those who have no money are often unhappy slaves for lack of it. You see, it goes both ways. So we are right to enjoy what God has given to us. The fact is, wealth can be very spiritually beneficial. It can teach us how very little things will satisfy us. And if used for Christ, it can enhance one's spiritual growth. 
It extends the work of the kingdom throughout the world. So for the disciples, as they watch this rich young man trudge away slowly, this was a teachable moment for Jesus. And the same goes for us. We are filthy rich people, every single one of us. Some of us may be more than others, but in the context in the entire, of the entire history of the world and in comparison with all other people in this world, 21st century Americans have a lot, a lot of money and possessions. And yet probably none of us really feel that way. In fact, we probably feel the pinch a lot of times and we recognize that some of these things are relative to our context. But the point is that in a culture like ours with money stacked all around us, it is very, very difficult for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a reason American evangelicalism is often so far off the road from biblical Christianity. There's a reason why the simple means of grace for the church often aren't enough for people. We have a built-in worldview that tells us we need bigger and greater and faster and stronger. All the while, the Lord is telling us, just trust me, rest in me, know me, grow in me, pursue holiness, love me, love your neighbor. This is why Jesus uses this example of the camel passing through the eye of a needle. It is an utter impossibility. It's a humorous illustration, but it proves a very important point. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in a book of poetry of his. He said, all things, for example, a camel's journey through a needle's eye are possible. It's true. But picture how the camel feels squeezed out in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. You see, Jesus categorically says it is impossible for a man or a woman who trusts in riches to go to heaven. Are you trusting in riches? Are you most concerned about your wealth? Friends, there are some of you here this morning who are unwilling to turn to Christ that you might enter the kingdom of heaven because you have an absolute love for the kingdom of man. The thought of selflessness, of serving and loving others in a way that God calls us to is simply beyond the realm of possibility to you because truth be told, and I think if you're honest about this, you would admit it, your greatest concern is with yourself. It's written all over our cultural landscape. You only live once. Do what makes you happy. And as long as you're happy, that's all that matters. Follow your heart. Pamper yourself. This is your day. This is your life, right? We hear all these things. And so the idea of depending upon God and resting in God's provision, being radically generous, living a life with the willingness to leave everything for the sake of Christ... That's just too much. But you don't realize you are drinking water from a tainted well. In fact, you're not drinking from a well at all. If you live your life in the kingdom of man, taking it all in for what it is, you're drinking down big gulps from the septic tank. 
every time you reject God's kingdom for another foray into man's kingdom, you're filling your glass from the septic tank and you're drinking it down. But friends, I commend to you the water of life, the pure, undefiled water of Jesus Christ. He will not leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. There's nothing you've done that he will not forgive. There's nothing you need that he will not provide. And all of the riches of the world could not purchase the great things that await those who trust in Jesus in everlasting life with him. Are you willing to trade everlasting pleasure and satisfaction for a few seconds, a few minutes, even maybe a few years of so-so pleasure? I don't doubt that your sin is fun. I know that it is. But is such fun worth your soul? Repent of your sin. Believe on Christ that you might live and receive the greatest riches anyone could ever have. You may marvel at the money of Bill Gates, but lest he repent and turn to Jesus Christ, there will be a day when he marvels at all that belongs to the children of God. Don't be a fool. Run to the cross and rest in Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 26. Those who heard what Jesus had said, said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, Mark's gospel says the disciples were amazed at these words. Why? Well, they still believed in a sort of prosperity gospel that was taught by the rabbis. They used Old Testament passages to equate God's blessing with material prosperity. They taught that the rich could build up their future merit and reward for themselves by giving what they had to the poor. To the Jewish mind, it was inconceivable that riches could be a barrier to the kingdom of God. Sadly, many American distortions of the gospel have frequently been afflicted with the same kind of earthly errant thinking. It's damnable. Today, we see this in the crass materialism of the name it and claim it teaching of the TV hucksters. This idea that God wants us to become richer and have more stuff and that's our inheritance of the kingdom of God is foolish. And all of the Bible speaks clearly against that reality. We need to hear what Jesus was really saying here and to hear it well. He's saying that wealth is a handicap. We think the rich to be overprivileged, but Jesus says that they're underprivileged. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He also said, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, remember we looked at several weeks ago, is a dramatic warning about this very matter. The same was true of the parable of the rich fool who built bigger and bigger barns, but his life was taken from him. There is a proper fear of being rich. There are disadvantages to having wealth. Primarily, what it can do to our souls if it's not handled correctly. It is very easy for an earnest man or woman to become so attached to material riches that he or she forgets what is infinitely more important. Wealth can pervert one's values. We soon know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And most tragically, wealth can empty us of one of the indispensable requirements of entering the kingdom of God. A helpless dependence upon God like a child. In the end, we must honestly recognize that it all belongs to God. We have what we have because God has graciously given it to us. Not because of our own worth, not because of our own ability to earn it and invest it in our own strength. Jesus says to the church, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How do we see ourselves, brothers and sisters? Are we content with self-righteous, self-sufficient lives? Are we living with an absolute dependence upon God and a trust in, in Him and all that He provides with thankful, humble hearts? We conclude verse 28. Peter said, See we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What is most valuable that we receive in this life and in the age to come? an everlasting union and communion with God. It's not material wealth. Material wealth is nothing in comparison to everlasting union with Christ. You see, what we do with our wealth will determine the spiritual health of ourselves and our families. With prosperity comes great danger. We must beware. What are we to do? First, we need to divest ourselves of dependence upon our stuff. We must make this a matter of prayer, all of us. Not just once in a while, but regularly, frequently, asking the Lord to keep us from the love of possessions. Secondly, we must invest our wealth. I'm not talking about the stock market necessarily. That's not a bad thing. But as our income rises, we must give to God's work in such a way that it affects our lifestyle. There are some things we do not buy and places we're not able to go because we've made a priority of giving to the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus made the point that salvation is a near impossibility for a rich man. But the unspoken reality is that it's impossible for a poor man as well. The point is, anyone's salvation is an unmerited work of God that man cannot do on his own. 
But with God, the impossible is made possible. The seventh chapter of Hebrews says the ground of salvation and Christ's sacrifice of himself for our sins and the fact that he serves as a priest forever, praying for those he saves. Did you know Jesus prays for you? The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Complete, absolute, total, eternal salvation is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ. Whoever we are, regardless of our boastings and our achievements, he can do the impossible in our hearts. For the rich or for the poor, for the materialist or the idealist, there is but one hope. And each must let go of possessions or passion or position or person to come to Jesus Christ. The rewards of so doing are everlasting. And I like Jesus' math here. I'm not good at math, but I like his math here. The rewards he promised are true in this world, as we know from our own experience of serving him. We give up everything and we gain everything. But how much greater will our experience be in the next world? I like Jesus' odds, so to speak. It is totally impossible for us to enter into the kingdom of God, an impossibility that is intensified by wealth. The odds for all of us are absolutely zero. But with God, thanks to His grace, the odds in our favor are infinite. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning, that as you have challenged us from your word, that we would find our greatest hope, our greatest assurance, our greatest longings in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we recognize that in your word you tell us very clearly that to have money, to have possessions, to even be wealthy is not in and of itself an evil or wrong thing. However, it does present to us a very risky challenge. And as a people, living in this place and in this time, in the way that you have blessed us, I pray, God, that you help us to take that warning very seriously that we strive to enter into the kingdom of God, knowing that by your grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been one. Our righteousness has been provided if we are children of God. And yet our hearts are still prone to wander, to covet, to lust after the things of this world. And so I pray, Lord, that you remind us day by day that we are to come to you as a helpless child and that we are to receive from you as a child full of anticipation and excitement and absolute trust. Lord, help us to be a people who recognizes our complete and total dependence upon you and that we would not trust in gold or silver the riches of this world, but that we would trust in Christ alone, who is our provider and our sustainer for all of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.